0: Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and Twitch, and sometimes I even upload the good bits. This is Previously Live.
1: I'm just gonna get you to intro yourself, but how do I pronounce your name?
0: Oh, you can just call me Vosh.
1: Okay, that's what I was gonna do. I just wanted to make sure I didn't mess that up. Okay, are you ready? Absolutely. Vosh, welcome to my podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, could you give a brief background about who you are and what it is you do?
0: Yeah, my name is Vosh. Well, that's not my real name, of course, but that's the name of my YouTube channel. And uh, I'm a libertarian socialist. I uh, do political commentary and uh, play a lot of video games, which really distracts from the political commentary, but (laughs) it is fun.
1: Okay, well then, let's get right into it. So, critical race theory. I'm going to start with, what is it, and what is it trying to solve?
0: So, critical race theory is a a collegiate theory, which is uh, largely a critique of liberalism, Uh, which centers the idea that um, modern discussions uh, around race relations uh, impose a kind of false neutrality, that there's an assumption of racial neutrality, that we've overcome systemic issues when we really haven't. Uh, It's a largely esoteric academic theory. Um, But when we talk about critical race theory, I think people tend to mean like, very broadly, colloquially, just anything academic which tries to tackle racism I know I've seen it used really vaguely so uh, when I'm talking about critical race theory I always try to find out what the other person means when they say it because I'm never quite sure myself
1: okay that's that's fair enough I feel like I'm coming from it from that angle not entirely sure what it is or what it involves or what it encompasses that's fine yeah so I would say the, the more conservative outlook on critical race theory is this is some type of Marxism that's infiltrating North America that's popping up in uh, academic places uh, all the way down to elementary schools and that this is a way for Marxism to get a foothold into America. Is that a conspiracy theory or is there any truth behind that?
0: I do think that's a conspiracy theory. Um, It is influenced by Marxist theory, but then I think most economic and political theories have been influenced by Marxism. I mean, so was the civil rights movement, of course, that's uh, it, Marx was an incredibly influential writer. Uh, it's not a Marxist theory, though. Uh, Marx was a modernist, and critical race theory is generally pretty postmodernist. When we're talking about like the prominence of critical race theory, this came about in the '80s. It's taught in law school. I never reached a level of education high enough to even be taught it officially. When we talk about young people, like middle schoolers being taught about critical race theory, it's kind of like saying they're being taught astrophysics because they're learning about arithmetic. You know, you do use arithmetic in astrophysics, don't get me wrong, useful skill, but it's not really astrophysics and it's not critical race theory either. Usually it's just boilerplate, liberal, anti-racist ideology, which I think is generally good to teach to kids, right? You want to instill virtue in them.
1: Okay. And then when we're talking about, so anti-racist ideology and teaching kids that why, and I'm coming from this, like from a conservative perspective for sure, but I'm also open to just learning about it. So why, why is that something that's necessary to teach children? Like anti-racism specifically, as opposed to just teaching people that people are equal, right? Not to, not to base on, base, judgment, I guess, based on your race.
0: Well, that is anti-racism, I suppose, right? I mean, at least I would like to believe the idea that we're all created and should be treated equally is a pretty fundamentally anti-racist idea. It's important though to contextualize things. Uh, And identifying racism is really important if you want to fight against it. I mean, if you don't know what you're looking for, uh, it's it's sort of a meaningless uh, virtue signal. Um, after the civil rights movement passed and, you know, schools were desegregated and what have you, it became pretty socially uh, stigmatized to be overtly racist, right? I mean, you know, running around saying the N-word burning crosses, you know, not to say it didn't happen, of course, but it's not, uh, it's, it's not as socially permissible. But there were racists back then, and racism didn't just disappear with the passage of that bill. So, uh, you know, things have been euphemized a little bit. And now when we talk about racism, for example, at least in the systemic sense, it's not always about if a person is being racist. Usually it's about which systems unfairly disadvantage people. And I think learning to identify those is critical because if you never address them, you never actually get to the world where people are equal. You only pretend you live in that world, which I think can feel a bit disingenuous at times.
1: So what kind of systems um, are we talking about here? Do you identify any of those?
0: Yeah, most of them are holdaways from old legal discrimination. So redlining, for example, the practice of, you know, disallowing black people from living in certain neighborhoods. Uh, I grew up in L.A., and you can actually see the lines where those neighborhoods uh, were, were intersected, usually along highways, where on one side you'll have these really nice, you know, two-story houses, and on the other side, it's like a different, it's like a different world, a different country, honestly. Um, and if you look at where black people lived versus white people in the 50s versus today, there hasn't been much change. The housing uh, demographic displacement is a really like long-term thing to fix, and that affects a lot of other stuff, the quality of the schools that you go to, jobs opportunities. Uh, A lot of wealth that white families enjoy today was kind of a product of the boost that soldiers got after World War II, all those suburban houses they got to move into. But the GI Bill wasn't really given full range to black folks. So there were all these like head starts basically that some folks got over others. And those consequences carried down a long way unless addressed, you know. I mean, think about it. Two generations ago, you know, some people were essentially legally second-class citizens. Um, the idea that all of those um, systemic biases could go away in that time without really strong addressal is, I don't think, realistic.
1: Okay, I, so that seems reasonable. Um, so then what what are the solutions there? So how, how are these things addressed without, I'd say, artificially pushing some people down? So I know I, I did a podcast on Harvard, and I was talking to an Asian guy and he'd done a bunch of research into critical race theory, Harvard, and how uh, Asian people are, have to score higher on their SATs just to get in. And to me, that looks like straight up racism. So how are some of these issues addressed without just going too far in the other direction?
0: Yeah, I'm not fond of that system myself. Um, obviously the goal should be total freedom for everyone, right? Everyone should be elevated. You never want to fix a systemic problem by dragging one group down. Um, Reparations, depending on how they're used and targeted, are a potential solution for this. I'm a really big fan, for example, of a kind of New Deal-esque urban poor revitalization. You know, in some cities in the United States, you have like suburban areas that look like they were built 10 years ago and inner city areas that look like they were built 100 years ago where all like this wealth is pooled, but none of it is being spent. And that has a lot of really negative consequences. Like I said, school quality, job opportunity, whether people want to invest there, you know, businesses don't tend to invest in places where there are more potholes than asphalt. Um, if you could find a way to invest in that, that would, I think, do a lot to alleviate the racial gap. And it wouldn't just be like a black people thing, you know, it's a broad country reinvestment, but it's, it's basically about identifying the systems through which there are disadvantages and then making those systems less inequitable for everyone. And I think that pulls all boats up without relying on any weird, like, you know, prove your great grandfather was a slave type racial targeting.
1: So you're potentially talking about some sort of tax then, and then the tax money goes towards boosting up areas of cities that are obviously not doing as well as other areas
0: i'd be okay with raising oh yeah i'd be okay with raising taxes at least in some respects you know um but i think that a lot of this actually has to do with our priorities i mean there are some obvious solutions like cutting the military budget which i think is a honestly it's like such a stereotype thing for like a left-leaning person to say but i mean yeah we probably could and and it wouldn't suffer, you know, any consequences. But it's also where this tax revenue goes, you know. Suburbs, for example, cost a lot for cities to maintain, but they don't produce that much wealth because houses are really spaced out. There's not that much taxable land relative to the occupation there. So you have this weird system where the areas of the city that produce the least money are getting the most money from the city back. A reassessment of our priorities, you know, really looking back into the inner city, Um, I think just, I honest, honest to God, I think you could solve a lot of these problems without raising a tax bill on any American. Um, but we have to know about these problems first and we have to care about them.
1: So then is what you're saying and correct me if I'm wrong, but is what you're saying that part of the benefit of critical race theory is it teaches people to identify these problems so they care about them so they can be fixed.
0: Yeah. The, for, for, um, the legal system specifically critical race theory, the the main thing they got mad about, right. There's this liberal notion that the law is impartial, you know, that it's uh, this completely neutral, uh, codified, like uh, arbiter of justice. Um, and if you look at how the data plays out with like court rulings, sentencing lengths, that kind of stuff, it's clearly not. The judicial system is made up of humans. Humans have biases. That's, I mean, that's just a fact of the world. And what a lot of these critical um, race theory, uh, you know, scholars were frustrated by was this insistence in their legal journals that they had achieved some kind of post-racial um, harmony. When in reality, what we'd done was paint over problems that were never meaningfully addressed. That attitude, the willingness to pry underneath the coat of paint to really look at what's gone wrong. I think that's a really admirable one in all walks of life.
1: Okay. And then let me, let me go to my list of questions. We can come back to that in a sec. So you, you think that there's bad, that some of these ideas that are in critical race theory came from Marxism, but like you described arithmetic leading to astrophysics, they came from there potentially, but it doesn't mean that Marxism is slowly taking over the States.
0: if if only. I'm I'm probably more sympathetic to Marxism than your average viewer, but no, Marxism was largely influential in a lot of anti-racist movements in the West because the idea of class struggle was synthesized well onto the racial struggle that, say, Martin Luther King experienced, you know? The idea of looking at the world not as it ought to be, the liberal notion, you know, freedom, uh, equality, idealism, but rather as it is which at least certainly in Martin Luther King's time, I hope we can agree, was kind of a fight for political power between uh, not just white people and black people, of course, but there was certainly that element to it. That ability to recognize the conflict is essential in order to address it. I think his term for it was um, that liberals prefer a negative peace over a positive justice. You know, If things are quiet, but you know, calm, many people prefer that over things getting loud for a bit, but then really fixing the problems thereafter.
1: Do you think so? Part of the issues I think that I have with critical race theory, at least on a surface level, is what it looks like is that kids or people are being taught that Black people are oppressed as a whole, you know, and just putting people based on their skin color into these boxes and ignoring everything else. So when you talk about you know, inner city areas or parts of cities that have issues, that should be addressed. But then you should be looking at maybe infrastructure and parts of cities that have issues, not the fact that, oh, in this city, the part of the city that has the issues is where black people live. Because then I think that breeds problems, right? I mean, there are poor areas all over the states that need help. So why not have a bill that's based on restructuring parts of cities that have issues rather than focusing on race?
0: in terms of a bill, I'm perfectly in favor of that. If you mixing up legislation with race is really messy in the best of circumstances for obvious reasons. So I'm uncomfortable with the government engaging in this kind of partitioning. They did it with Native Americans and, you know, the one drop rule and all that. It just, uh, yeah. Um, but in terms of analysis, you know, I think we should have a pretty no holds barred approach to how we look at these things and if you take a look at a bunch of these systems in the united states where black people tend to be disadvantaged it's not by accident right i mean if you look back during the jim crow laws for example a lot of the laws there that disadvantaged black people weren't like black targeted you had for example the poll taxes and literacy tests Uh, And then you had the grandfather clause, essentially like, here's a really difficult reading test you have to pass, you know, formerly illiterate slave in order to vote. Um, But you don't have to do the test if you can prove your grandfather could vote right before slavery was ended so essentially like without ever mentioning race you have a system which is basically like okay white people get in black people get, have fun with your test you know um you don't have to mention race for it to be racialized and in the case of redlining or you know criminal justice bias you have systems which are on the whole problematic could do with some working but there is a trend and i think identifying that trend is important because it would be really unfortunate if just through happenstance we fix these problems but then in 20 years you know more of them crop up and you know the same problems keep re-emerging we never address the root of it which is in some cases people are just racist sure but in a lot of cases I think people don't understand the relationship between different kinds of oppression and how they might um, multiply you know what I mean how they might compound which is why you know there are plenty of things that are totally race neutral that do disproportionately affect black people like uh, closing down polling stations, because a lot of black people make less money because they live in areas that offer you know worse jobs. So they don't often have the time to go driving further to go put in their vote. You know, little stuff like that accumulates and it feels nonsensical, right? Like, because I think the intuitive response is like, well, what, you think black people can't drive? But it's all these little things that build up. And at the end of the day, we're people and our behavior is a product of a ton of influences. It's the role of the state, and of people who analyze these problems, I think to look uh, past the surface and see if there's something more substantive they can resolve.
1: Hmm. Okay, so I don't know if you know about my background, and I don't want to compare myself to a black person, but my like my issue in life was having an autoimmune disorder, and it was bad. Like there were periods of time when I couldn't walk, and so that would fall under you know how able-bodied I was, and I'm not convinced that, I guess, teaching people that they grew up under oppression basically and that they're kind of stuck in that is the way out of that. Like, don't you think it's probably more useful for people to learn that they have issues that they grew up with and they're going to be issues forever because life sucks, but maybe they should kind of fight their way out of it rather than change society as a whole? You could just disagree there, but I mean, people have issues like, you know, some people are unhealthy and sometimes I think giving people the knowledge that they can change the way they live and accomplish things regardless of who they are is healthier than teaching kids. Oh, you've been born under this, you know, oppression and you're kind of stuck there just doesn't seem like a healthy way of battling some of these problems.
0: Well, I don't think we should ever teach people, especially young people, that they're stuck anywhere. I think it's important, whether you're an advocate for critical race theory or not, to encourage people to be fiercely ambitious, determined, self-actualized, etc. But I don't think that's mutually exclusive to addressing the broader problems. I mean, throughout history, the most ambitious people were usually the ones who rose up to conquer disadvantages they had to overcome when we look at history's heroes you know sometimes they're people who are uniquely and singly ambitious there's nothing wrong with that but uh whether we're talking about kings and conquerors warlords or civil rights leaders you know scientists and heroes often there is a simultaneous advocacy for individual achievement and for uh you know a a usurping of whatever unfair social order they're they're trying to fight against and that's i mean that's kind of like the, the the big thing right When we talk about politics, at least when I do, I'm always thinking, how can we improve upon this? What problems are there that can be fixed? It's that attitude that led to the birth of this country, after all. Complacency would have kept us under, you know, Henry for... (laughs) I don't know. However, we would be a colony right now, I suppose. Um, Maybe we would have fought them off after World War II. I mean, I I don't know, but I'm glad we had the war for our, our, our independence. And I'm, you know, glad our founding fathers weren't complacent about that sort of thing. So I guess I would hope to encourage both, but never to encourage, as I think is often overly attributed, but does sometimes exist, a victim mentality. Um, because it is possible to be a victim of problems, or of circumstance, of oppression, um, but to not be a victim as, as a, a mode of identity. You, know, you can be a victor in circumstances of oppression, and that's what I would want to teach. You know? I- Identify the problem, but overcome. Rise above it. Don't let it diminish your strength.
1: Okay, agree with you there. Um, Do you think that people who are, um, I guess, uh, pushing critical race theory, do you think that's the general feeling of people who are trying to teach this? Or do you think that they're teaching this underlying victimhood because they're resentful about something?
0: I think if we're talking about proper critical race theory at the collegiate level, it would definitely be the, you know, uh, the former, like determined, dedicated. If you take a look at critical race theory scholars, for example, these people are not like quiet or complacent at all. They're quite, quite loud and outspoken in a great many ways. So clearly ambition is on their plate when it comes to like the stuff people call CRT being taught in elementary middle school. The issue is a lot of this stuff is just like, let's be real being taught by, like, over-earnest white progressive Karens, I guess. Like, that's where a lot of it is coming from. Like, hey, listen, no hate, okay? I'm sure many of them are wonderful people. But I've seen some of these lesson plans. And, I mean, the way Twitter blows everything up, I don't think this is the norm. But I've seen some where there's usually an overeager white teacher who's like, all right, now we're going to hand out oppression stickers and, you know, uh, it, it, the black kids get this one and you know if you're disabled you get this one so, and now everyone line up and then there's some white kid at the front of the class like ostracized from everyone because he has no stickers and it's like you know it, it, stuff like that I, I don't think that's conductive to any positive yeah so but I don't consider that critical race theory I think that weird cringy over ambitious attempts to address social inequality have kind of been a thing for a while more attention is being paid to it now of course
1: okay Well, I mean, it's impossible for me to know what's going on because, yeah, you know, you hear things on Twitter, like you said, um, about that kind of thing happening. And that's awful. Um, It's not good.
0: It's it's, it's, it's very good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, What about, do you know, what about, what about critical race theory being taught in corporations? Do you think that's a good use of, you know, time for, let's say, I don't know, engineers?
0: I mean, like Robin D'Angelo, like that th- that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I, I guess that's that's pretty adjacent to critical race theory. I don't like Robin D'Angelo at all. Remember what I said about overeager white women. Um, it's so t- so first of all we have to know how this happens okay this isn't like sjw's infiltrating corporations this is overpaid corporate consultants you know running through their budgets and thinking you know what's the most eye-catching thing i've heard about in the news recently that i can you know spend my quarterly budget on it with with within my department and you know robin d'angelo is a huge ticket right now because she's controversial so that tends to be how it goes i don't think there are like mm. ceos who are like pro critical race theory i doubt they even know what it means or care um, in terms of these lessons I've seen some of their slideshows where it talks about like essentially white deferentialism there's a there's a an attitude on the right that people on the left think that if you're white or a man or cisgender or whatever you should be sort of complacent or deferential to minority groups it's an attitude I've never had um, I don't think your opinions become more right or wrong based on your race or your you know, your, your sex or anything else like that. And sometimes these, um, how do I, how do I put it? It comes off like a kind of performative self-flagellation. You know what I mean? Where people are demonstrating, usually white people, how progressive and woke they are by, you know, making a show of how aware they are of these issues. And this performativity to me has nothing to do with real activism it's it's a you know it's a sell show it's it's what people do to feel good about themselves in corporations people should be taught uh you know don't sexually harass people um if you're racist you know we'll fire you or whatever like be be cool <laughs> yeah but giving them like a big slideshow on uh you know weird sort of watered down version of esoteric legal racial theories is I don't, I don't know how that's really relevant. I just think it's like a hot ticket item right now.
1: Have you, this is kind of a, a side tangent. Have you heard of ESG scores? ESG score, no, I haven't. haven't okay, played. so ESG scores, I just learned about these. ESG scores stands for Environment Social Governance Scores. Are you looking it up?
0: I I, okay, wait, no, I think I have heard of this. Yeah, okay.
1: So from what I've heard, and th- this should, I think this should be concerning. From what I've heard, um, whether or not you teach kind of some of these social issues like critical race theory, or, you know, gender studies, or some of these things that are getting into corporations with those slideshows, your corporation gets an ESG scores, a score, and that enables you to purchase EFTs. So invest in EFTs Mm -hmm. or the ETFs, exchange traded funds, ETFs. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah this is kind of I down a rabbit so. hole.
1: this uh, is kind of down a
0: I think I've heard about this um I have so, problems with it, i think,
1: yeah, okay. some of these this is i've i've been i' found out about these a couple of weeks ago, and I've been talking about them a bunch because it's kind of concerning. It brings in so Ireland apparently just started keeping e s g scores on their citizens so you know depending on how much carbon you produce that affects the environment part of the esg score and then social could be you know who knows what but for corporations it involves critical race theory and governance well it sounds scary enough as it is you don't know what kind of what governance means as a corporation or as an individual but it seems a lot and this sounds conspiratorial but it sounds a lot like china's social credit system And right now they're already in place for corporations in, in North America, and they're already being used on individuals in Ireland. And so the more conspiratorial part of me, which is a very large portion of me, I'll admit, but is concerned about things that impact that kind of score, like critical race theory, right? So some of these corporations, it might be a hot ticket item, but some of these corporations, it kind of looks like for whatever reason, they're being pressured into bringing some of these um, social issues into their corporation in order to impact their scores, because that impacts what they're able to invest in. I don't even know if you have a comment on that. I just no, know no, I, that.
0: I I have a few. I just, yeah, I didn't know the, the good the good time to interject there. I can't speak to the Ireland thing with it being used on citizens. I don't think it's acceptable for the government to keep any kind of score on you. Uh, if you break a law, that's up to the judicial system. That's that. Yeah. I hate our credit score system, which is essentially... Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, me too. Yeah, I mean, that's not technically from the government. You know, but it might as well be again, yet, yeah, in terms of its functionality. Um, so I will never support something like that. In terms of like the um, the corporate stuff, the the details on this in my mind are a little bit hazy. I think if, if we were to talk about this as kind of a systemic issue, right? Um, long it has been the case that corporations will use these sort of arbitrary internal metrics to determine uh, who's favored uh in in various elements of the market you know um i think th- like for example you know uh we've we've seen this whole like pony show going on with um like uh carbon tr- or like uh the carbon trades yeah. you know where yeah now I-, I am very cynical about these i think that for the most part corporations do one thing and they make money that is their sole, the only thing they care about they don't care about uh civil rights they don't care about anything corporations can, and they have, if you look in other countries, they will work with Nazis, they will work with leftists, they will work with, well, leftists don't tend to like corporations for their own reasons, but if they can get along, they'll work with anyone, they just want to make their money. Um, I think that when when we talk about stuff like this, we're talking about a very um, topical way of playing social favorability politics with corporations in a way similar to what you've seen in the past with, like, I remember GM, for example, like, changed their logo to green as part of their new, like, green initiative. And then they didn't do anything, they just changed. Yeah, right. And I'm sure their stock went up when they did that, too. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, This is just another expression of that. And the way out of this, I think, um, though the market will always play its own games, I think it's important to understand from both sides of the political aisle that all plays at social justice from corporations are just a way of increasing um, share value. That's it. That's the sole and only purpose through which they do anything. That's the only reason their shareholders would approve anything. It's if it serves that goal. Public reputation is leveraged in favor of more money in the future, you know, infrastructural investment, you know, reinvestment into means of production, all of it. If we can acknowledge that, we stop talking about this as wokeness taking over, or you know, um, you know this this like new nefarious uh, Robin DiAngelo, um you know, scheme, and instead refer to it. I think what it's always been really, which is just an eternal, ongoing. PR game that they constantly play. They invent metrics for themselves to banty them about and, you know, prioritize some over others. They love these games. It gives middle managers something to do. Um, I don't think, you know, real civil rights issues can be addressed by corporations. I think that At the end of the day, it has to come from us and our understanding of these problems. And I really don't think Robin DiAngelo is being brought to any of these conferences for any reason other than because the consultants who recommended her can then list it when they move over to the next corporation two months later and get a slightly higher pay. And if we can address it like that, which is cynical corporate banter, then I think we'd all be a lot better off for it because I get, defen- I get accused of defending both corporations and, oh God, I hate corporations. It's just, you know, I just, I just don't think it has anything to do really with politics outside of money-making.
1: Okay. That's, I don't know how I feel about that. That's probably true. Corporations are focused on making money. Yeah, of course they are. And, you know, if, if this critical race theory, if that it's true that that impacts their ability uh, to invest, then it'd be all the more reason to push it. And then, then it'd be back to money in the first place.
0: Uh, gets headlines too. I mean, it, it always gets attention, yeah. right? Like Nike's stock price skyrocketed when they did the Colin Kaepernick campaign, uh, mostly because, you know, of, of just all the attention they got for it. Conservatives hated it, you know? So if conservatives hate what it, left people have to, I think they just did a promotional thing with Colin Kaepernick right after he kneeled during the Pledge of Allegiance. Ah, oh, There were okay, all those people burning their Nikes and stuff. And, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, it's a stock market bar going up while some, you know, corporate leader, uh, you know, it, it, you know, with a reptilian camouflage is like looking at it and smiling. You know, I don't it's 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 I think very detached from the real issues at hand outside of giving us all something to talk about, which I guess it does that
1: he <laughs> yeah, as if we need more to talk about right now yeah. with everything going on. Uh, okay. Do you think this critical race theory is wrapped up in, um, other things that are from what I see kind of also infiltrating kids at a like a low level, like gender studies being taught to like kindergartners, I don't think or you... those separate, separate issues. Like for right-wingers would be like, just, the entire thing is just like woke. Right. So critical race theory, gender studies, I don't know.
0: The world's more progressive now than it was 20 years ago. I don't think that's a bad thing. That's just an ongoing process. There were standards being taught back in the 1930s that people in the 1910s would have been taught. I mean, that just keeps happening. Um, with regards to the gender stuff, I, I mean, I don't have like a young kid, but it seems like at a lower level, at least, it's fairly innocuous, you know, like uh, a basic understanding like sex and gender aren't the same thing. Um, I mean, I think that's perfectly fine. It's defensible, certainly. It's a position backed up by psychiatric and biological experts in the field. So it seems like uh, it would be fair to introduce it, especially since it's so politically topical, you know? I feel like if nobody was talking about trans people at all, like it wasn't this big high level political thing with senators coming out and talking about it, I feel like it probably wouldn't be discussed as much. Same with a lot of this, you know, race stuff. But given that it's so indicative of the zeitgeist of the times, it seems fair, you know, Uh, as long as they're not teaching anything exclusionary, incorrect or offensive, I suppose, you know, like uh, I don't think this is happening, but, you know, like men are worse than women because they're more mean or whatever, you know, leave that stuff out and I'm fine with it.
1: Okay, I'm going to read something from, so the the book's called Critical Race Theory, The Key Writings That Formed the Movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and to tell you the truth, I don't know whether this is pro or anti-critical race theory or if it's neutral, but I'm going to read this and let me know what you think. Gotcha. Critical race theory rejects the principle of equality of opportunity. Its adherents insist that equality of opportunity is a myth, not a reality in today's America, and that those who pursue it are misguided. The real goal is equality of results measured by Black share of income, wealth, and social standing. Critical race theorists reject the idea that sought after goods should be distributed through systems that evaluate and reward merit. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate?
0: Oh, yeah, that's that's definitely central to a lot of um, CRT writings, though you're not going to find anything like that being taught in high schools. I'll tell you that much. Uh, Maybe somewhere, but certainly not standard. Um, Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, Keep in mind before I address that, um, a lot of critical race theory was written directly to be provocative because it was kind of like the edgiest Harvard students, you know. And, and 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 professors writing out against wh- what is essentially the most monolithic and important legal institution on the planet harvard law i mean that's at least it's up there right that's that's got to be really far up there so a lot of their writings mm-hmm. are deliberately evocative i think their frustration was that um, i'll say this i get this all the time martin luther king's i have a dream speech uh, great speech everyone's heard it oftentimes it is cited as a kind of counterexample to what critical Mm -hmm. race theorists believe in. You know, I have a dream that we judge for the content of our character, not the color of our skin. And it's, it's interesting to me that that would be the case, because Martin Luther King in that speech was referring to the world he wanted to live in, not the world that would exist immediately after the Civil Rights Bill was passed. In fact, after the bill was passed, in a book I think entitled What Do We Do Now?, Martin Luther King wrote stuff that would later be well, inspirational to future critical race theory scholars about, for example, the essential need for reparations to address long-term harm so that it's not merely, you're no longer being stabbed in the back, but you've actually patched up the wound. Um, The need for white people to understand more significantly the nature of racism so that we can work together to combat it. A lot of that stuff, I mean, I never see it cited, but it was quite evocative, I think. When we talk about equality of opportunity, usually people do so with the implication that it exists today. But like, and this isn't even a racial perspective, that's very not true. If you're born to a wealthy family, everything is going to be easier on average than if you're born to a poor family. That's not to say that individual choices and decision making don't matter, you can fail as a wealthy person and succeed massively as a poor person. But when we're dealing with millions of people in the country, statistical averages do emerge. Race is one of those lines where it's really clear that we we just don't have it, you know? Um, same with meritocracy, which is an idea I would like to believe in a world I want to live in, not one that exists. The argument of the critical race theorists is that in a world with equality of opportunity, we would essentially have equality of outcome. That if there was no systemic bias between black and white people, they would achieve essentially equal, um, you know, systemic outcomes. And I think I agree with that because the only other belief one could have is absent any social biases there would be something biological holding black people back, which I obviously don't believe. I don't think a lot of people believe that, Um, but it seems like that the implication, right? I mean, if we really did have equality of opportunity, then we should be about, you know, at least in terms of averages on par.
1: Okay. Or was I going to go after that? Do you think there's any evidence that teaching people about critical race theory actually reduces racism?
0: By critical race theory here, we mean sort of the colloquial what's taught in like high schools middle schools just the general like anti-racism thing or or the
1: Harvard Yeah, level. like what's being Well, I mean, my view probably is that the Harvard level has just trickled down. And I mean, once it gets into high schools, like you said, it's not going to be the same thing that's taught in Harvard, but I still think it's probably trickled down. So whatever's being taught now, do you see that working?
0: Um, In terms of fighting back against racism, individual racism is difficult to... educating people out of racism, I think, is about a couple of things. Uh, Making sure they live in proximity to people of other races, and making sure they don't live in proximity to people who are themselves racist. I really think those are the big kickers, you know? If you uh, live in a diverse community, you are monumentally less likely to have, you know, racially inflammatory opinions, you know? And there are tons of studies that bear that out. Um, And of course, if your parents are well, you know, really racist, it's more likely that you're going to end up racist. I don't know how much education directly about racial issues deters it, but I do think it gives the people who aren't racist uh, a better understanding of the issue and the tools to fight against it more substantively. For me, at least, I would like to see a de-emphasis of individual racism. Individual racism exists, don't get me wrong. I've talked to plenty of folks who will just straight up admit they're racist, you know. But I don't really think that's the nature of racism in this day and age. I think a lot of it comes down to really big abstract systems that no one individual has much control over, or concepts that are so abstracted that they don't, you know, directly meaning anything about race. Back in the Nixon admin, for example, post Civil Rights Act, you know, we have uh, it was Atwater I think who talked about how you know suburban was kind of meant like white like inner city kind of meant like black, you know, after white flight, you know, the demographics were evident in the distinction. A lot of white people were in the suburbs and a lot of black people were in the inner cities. And then add a couple decades of abstraction on that. And it's like, well, what are we even talking about anymore? Learning to figure that out, I think is really, really important. And maybe that education can help people do so. Focus a little bit less on explicit, overt, interpersonal elements of racism, and a little bit more on the abstract stuff, which we should all, I think, work arm in arm, you know. There's a strong argument to be made for fighting against that stuff, even if you're white and don't benefit at all directly from anti-racism. From, you know, vitalization of our economy to uh, the reduction in crime, because income inequality is the biggest contributor to crime anywhere in the world. Uh, There are so many reasons, you know. I I think also abstractly, maybe spiritually, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's good to know that, you know, you're linking arm and arm with neighbor to make the country that you live in, the world that you live in, a better place. And this is just part of that.
1: Some of those abstract ideas, so I can see what you mean by like suburban and inner city, but what does fighting against that even look like? like what does educating people about that and then fighting against it look like?
0: Well, I think part of it is that some of these euphemisms are still used today, oftentimes unintentionally, you know, the way people talk about the inner city colloquially carries with it a lot of weight that I think denotes a, maybe not an awareness of, but at least a familiarity with a lot of codified stereotypes. And sometimes it prevents us from addressing these issues. So a good example would be how we talk about crime in the inner city. Now, a lot of violent crime in the United States is caused in the inner city, in black communities. And overwhelmingly, this violent crime is, you know, contributed to by gang violence. And Often the way we address this is through a sort of blith dismissal. You know, it's a cultural issue or there's something wrong, you know, not enough like dads in the family or whatever. You know, it's something like that. But there are actually really direct historical causes to the place that we're at today with regards to that particular bias. And the, the euphemisms abstract the history They rob us of the ability to understand where this came from. The drug epidemic we have right now, for example, of crack cocaine, I mean, this is just a generation past mine, you know, Uh, my dad would have been uh, just a bit younger than me, I think, when that really exploded, um, the crack epidemic in the inner cities. And while I'm not saying like the CIA brought it here or anything like that, the way drug policies were enforced, the way police responded to it created a culture where in some areas, you know, drug running was legitimately the best financial opportunity for a lot of people. And a lot of these people who did it, you know, they have sick parents, they have siblings who are, you know, living off of uh, EBT cards and school lunches that are barely substantial. I can tell you from the community that I was born into, nobody uh, in Beverly Hills, uh, you know, was pushed into drug running out of economic necessity. But when you're playing averages, at least a few people will in the worst communities that have the worst economic opportunities. So I guess what I'm saying is it's important to cut through abstraction because it leads to us essentializing some of these problems rather than identifying their historical causes which then leads us to their solutions
1: how does identifying their historical causes lead to solutions necessarily
0: well first and foremost that it's an economic problem you know the crime is caused because gangs fight over territory because well gangs Mm -hmm. do that you know uh, to protect their trade their supply of you know drugs um but black people and white people don't actually use drugs in different amounts by any statistically significant degree. So why is it all in the black community? Well, a lot of it is because the particular dynamics of urban city construction make it a little bit easier to run a gang than out there in like rural Wisconsin. Uh, But a lot of it is also because of the relative dearth of economic opportunities. Cut through the abstraction. We need a jobs program. And again, not targeted by race, you know, you know, prove your great grandfather was a slave and we'll give you a job or whatever. But. So many of these urban areas and inner cities are falling apart and they are like ripe for investment that we shy away from in large part because of the stigma inner city. You know, the term carries with it this weight, not just of race or poverty, but of unworthiness. Uh, And all this is like really Hmm. subtle linguistic stuff. This isn't to say this is like some explicit scheme being manufactured or whatever, but these issues, um, they're really complicated. And I think even if people disagree with me on this, which they're totally free to, I think it's worthy of our time and attention to look at them in this way, because, you know, even if it sometimes leads to what some people might consider like a a reach, you know, uh, I think we're all smarter for the process.
1: It's funny, growing up in Canada, like, I don't think there is an inner city thing. Like, people wanted to live downtown. That was about it. It was like, oh, you live on the outskirts? You, like, live downtown? That's where everything's happening. It just wasn't the same, I don't think.
0: I have no idea about, yeah, Canada. I know, I, I, yeah, I know. We we just think of you as our, you know, our nice uh, northerly neighbors who deal with snow more often than we do.
1: yeah. Okay, let me just make sure, I, because I want to cover some more questions. Let me just see what I have here to make sure I have everything I want. Of course.
0: And I really do appreciate you taking the time.
1: Yeah, well, I like these episodes. They're fun. Um, okay. Okay, do, do you not think... So here... Um. No, I'm not that interested in that question. Do you think that educating people on do you not feel that the amount of time it would take to educate people on all the unfairness that exists between races and then if we go outside of like racial studies be just anything do you think the amount of time it takes to educate people on unfairness is actually worth putting in that rather than maybe teaching people how to make money
0: well i think Are people
1: gonna get wound up like trying to figure out where things went wrong and rather than just how to improve problems that are you know happening right now
0: i think it's good to get people wound up you know these problems are happening right now i mean we talk about it in the abstract but there are tens of millions of black americans who live materially worse lives uh because of historical circumstance you know and it's it's abstract when discussed at an academic level, but on a personal level, you know, every dollar um, you know missed is a is a, a dinner plate unfilled. There's always a, a direct uh, a consequence of these things, even though, and, and I admit, I mean, they're abstract to me too, right? I mean, we're talking about like hundreds of years of history and like whole of America, 300 million people that, but I know this does affect people and being able to draw individual experience from that abstraction, I think is really, really important. So like a good example of this, um, for example, I think would be like a male isolation, you know, it's a really interesting topic. A lot of men feel really like, um, what's the term, wanderlust, a sort of disaffectation with the world as it is right now, I think. And that's like a really abstract issue. I mean, if you talk about it at length in a psychological or philosophical sense, you get into the weeds, but you feel it individually. There's a real thing at at work there. I think a lot of people, at least I can say for my audience, people who have never had words put to that phenomena before, I think they appreciate it being pointed out in, in in those ways. And I think we can do the same for a lot of these issues. In terms of getting people wound up, I guess I like it when people are wound up. I think it's just a good state of being to be in. I don't want us tilting at windmills, mind you. The, 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 the stereotype of the overeager college student who's out there screaming that skyscrapers are patriarchal because they're phallocentric and you know, uh, stairwells are ableist because people in wheelchairs can't fly up them or whatever, is true. College students are obnoxious. I will not deny that. I will not lie to anyone and pretend that's not the case. But the spirit there, I think, is good. After all, the Enlightenment thinkers upon which this country's ideas were built were also annoying, uh, you know, college students in their time. And if you go back and read some of their earlier stuff, they were annoying i mean know-it-all stuck up you know rich snooty boys who threw a bunch of ideas at the wall but like hey that's life right in in terms of what we have right now i don't think there's a trade-off there i think that people who are individually motivated feel a greater drive when they can give name to sort of ephemeral abstract problems that may be hampering them in some ways and I think people who aren't that motivated, people who don't have a lot of drive personally, uh, which is unfortunate, you know, regardless of the race uh, of, of that person, I, I still think there's a benefit to understanding the nature of the beast. Maybe that can, you know, if if out of spite, nothing else motivate them. I know, for example, I'm an anti-capitalist, so you know, this is more particular to me. But I know a lot of people are really unhappy with the uh, the working world right now, and if they, sometimes it manifests as this listlessness, you know, like wake up at 6 a.m., go to the job, make barely enough money to pay my bills, go to sleep, add infinitum until you die. And some people think, well, is this all life is? And unfortunately for a lot of people, it will be just as a matter of odds. But if you can understand why things are that way, what forces are at work, maybe you can feel like less of a, a soul wandering through purgatory and more of an active agent in these big processes that are taking place.
1: Yeah. Or maybe you should be taught to stop feeling sorry for yourself and work harder. But I mean, I'm pretty disagreeable. So
0: there are plenty of poor people who work really, really hard. Right. I know, for example, that I had friends who grew up in um, East LA, uh, uh, Korean kids, you know, their moms who work like three jobs a day, Uh, can barely make enough, rent prices go up, you know. I, I, I think we have an easy time understanding when things aren't fair in the past days. Like, if you went up to a coal miner in 1872, or like a textile manufacturer at the turn of the century, you know, like, you look at them today, and it's like, okay, obviously they're getting screwed over, you know, clearly, as they're being packed into, like, uh, you know, buildings with no fire codes, three families to a bedroom, and then they work for 12 hours a day and they lose their hands in the textile machine. Like, like now, of course, that looks obviously bad, but I think we can live in a better world than the one we do today. And I'd like to believe that in a hundred years, people will look back scornfully at the system we have now. And in that future, it would be as tasteless to look back on people working today and say, oh, why don't they just work harder? You know, they could have gotten themselves out of it as it would be for us to say the same thing to a coal miner in, you know, Appalachia, 1872.
1: I guess part of the issue I have is what's the solution here? Because, I mean, you said something about being, well, you said anti-capitalist. I think you mentioned Marxism earlier. Um, But even like, doesn't that involve redistributing wealth from people who have a whole bunch of money? And aren't those rich people just going to go somewhere where they... Their money isn't taken.
0: The problem with capital flight, um, it's a studied phenomena. I don't know if it's m- as much of an issue as people claim it to be, but I think at the end of the day, we live in a democracy, and I don't like the idea of civic policy being held hostage because we're afraid of the greed of a few people at the top. There's not really any such thing as a redistribution of wealth, after all. The existence of wealth where it is right now is as artificial as any redistribution's program would be. Uh, the existence of a state, for example, allows for the protection of property rights, which is the only reason why factory owners get to keep their factories instead of being bludgeoned to death by their workers and having the workers take everything for themselves. It's the reason cops guard banks and the like. So the invocation of the state is what preserves things today. A more natural system of acquisition would probably be back in the monarchical days, where you'd literally have people sacking villages for gold and art and protecting it in a storeroom of a castle. But even that relies on the idea of a monarchy. And I mean, you can go back forever, but I don't think there is like a natural distribution of wealth. There are systems, and those systems determine where money goes, but our system right now is every bit as arbitrary as the system the pharaohs built. You can argue that ours is more equitable, which it is, uh, but that doesn't mean it's perfect. We can certainly do better. And I guess as a person who... Uh, speaking charitably here, is sympathetic to some of Marx's critiques. I think that if we look at the history of organized labor, we find that a lot of really great things we take for granted today were fought for, oftentimes at great personal cost or death, by uh, unions and by striking miners and textile workers back in the day. And while I don't want the Pinkertons gunning down any good working folk today, you know, I do think it's important to remember that as it is the right of a business person to stop, you know, paying their workers very much and go to minimum wage, it is our right to have a general strike. Nothing can take that away from us. And a general strike would cripple the world, really. It wouldn't take long at all with how systems work these days. It's a power we have and are taught not to exercise. I'm saying we broadly, I'm not a member of the working class anymore, but you know, we, the, we, the people like writing the constitution, you know, um, and whatever arose from that, a general strike, higher wages, whatever. I don't think that's really wealth redistribution. It's just another distribution of wealth. One of any infinite number.
1: Okay. Well, we need to wrap this up because we could keep going for a while. I feel, but let me, okay, here's, here's something I wanted to comment on before. We wrap things up um, where I write it. Okay. You mentioned this was maybe five or six minutes ago. You mentioned people, um, I'm not going to be able to word this properly, but you mentioned people caring about topics. So if you educate people, they, they care about certain topics. You said something along those lines that is butchering it. But my question was, do you feel like the way people are taught in colleges now manipulates them into caring about certain topics? I mean, even say you know, you're born, you don't know anything about the climate. And then everyone tells you there are problems with the climate. So then you care about the climate with critical race theory. It's kind of like that with gender studies, it's kind of like that. And personally, my experience when I, um, I went to university, I went to an art school and it was like super liberal art school. And I started list, Ugh, this really pissed me off. I, cause I was paying for school by myself and I took a class on Homer. And then I was learning Homer through the feminist lens. And it wasn't Homer, it was Homer through the feminist lens, which wasn't what I signed up for. But I saw that happen across the board, and I think it's worse now. So don't you think some of these social issues are getting pushed into courses that really don't have anything to do with them, and people who wouldn't necessarily care about these issues are caring about them because of whatever's going on in colleges right now?
0: We care what we're taught to care about, which I think is equally applicable to critical race theory from the conservative perspective, right? It's been around since the 1980s. Nobody was talking about it until, you know, 2021, right? Because all of a sudden Fox News started talking about it and this and that. And now all of a sudden it's a big issue effect in America. We we care about what we're told to care about. I think, I don't know if there's a difference between being told about something and being forced to care about something, right? I mean, if you're told about an endangered species, was that manipulative? I genuinely don't know. I mean, by nature of the way our brains work, I guess that would sort of compel me to care, but... Uh, The difference between presenting information neutrally and presenting it in a biased way is not something I can really discern, as long as the information is being presented truthfully. I mean, I'm not talking like crazy, like, you know, propaganda, state lies or whatever. But if we're operating within the realm of analysis, which is fairly free form, certainly in critical race theory, I don't know where that line is. I guess for me, the line that I would try to look for is, is what's being taught uh, true and is there value to it being taught? You know, are are people getting something out of this? And while I can't speak to a feminist uh, interpretation of Homer, having not uh, learned about the text myself, uh, um, t- t- tragically, uh, I um, I I think with regards to a lot of the progressive stuff, the conservatives, to be fair, are upset over. I think there is value to it. I think that there's conflict arisen where some need not be, and that's a product of language on both sides i think that most conservatives i mean there are racists everywhere i think most conservatives are not racist certainly um they don't like they don't like wake up every morning and think like i hate black people whatever you know um i think that the way in which we approach these issues however has less to do with our intent and more to do with the outcome of our intent because and i guarantee this is true there are probably people holding up signs which said, uh, race mixing equals communism back during the civil rights protests, you know, um, who probably also didn't think they were racist, right? I mean, I guess it doesn't matter to me what people really think. It's more about what they do and what they affect. And as long as we're operating in that realm, I think we can depersonalize a lot, which is good because the last thing I want is for anti-racism to turn into this game of people pointing fingers and screaming, this person's racist, that person's racist, but rather... For us to sit down at the table and think, or I guess say, we should all be invested in the improvement of our country, infrastructural improvements. This should be like a non-issue, you know. When it happens, it's good. It's simple as that. We should we should look at the data, look at what we have, and we should at least be open to analysis. You know, there are um, points of critical race theory I explicitly disagree with. Um, and there are plenty of leftists who fight within themselves all the time. Critical race theorists are fighting against each other all the time. There are, you know, storied, like some of them have real personal grudges against each other. It's really funny. Um, it's, It's not a monolithic, like ideological totality to grapple with. It's just things have gotten more progressive across the board. This is one of the more esoteric expressions of that trend. And if we all can at least engage with the critique, I think we can all come out learning something from it. I know, for example, I learned quite a bit from conservative critiques of uh, anti-individualism, you know, uh, the whole victimhood culture thing. Yeah, I, because conservatives make that critique. I know a lot of my political beliefs, the necessity of individual action, will, discipline, uh, have been influenced by that. Even though I disagree with a lot of the conclusions those thinkers came from. I think there's a guy called Jocko Willink, who, who's, who's known in the, yeah, I'm sure I would disagree with him politically on almost everything, but there are some things that he says that, you know, analysis wise, I think are, are, are actually quite valuable. And I just, I think that's the attitude we should approach things with. And if nothing else, it would lead to less inane social media bickering. So that, that's probably better for everyone's mental health.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, with that, I'm going to call close to this episode. Thank you very much for coming on. If people want to follow you, where should they go?
0: I'm just uh, Vosh on YouTube. That's V-A-U-S-H. As much fun as people have um, mistyping it. Uh, I really do appreciate you having me on.
1: No problem. That was good. That was interesting. Thanks again for coming on. My pleasure.